KPCA LP, Petaluma, California. Good morning, Petaluma. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCA LP, Petaluma, California. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman, the rabbi of B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. It's great to have you with us this morning. Uh, During our second segment today, we're going to be speaking with Henry Kaku, who is a member of the Japanese-American community, and we'll have a discussion with him about the history of that community in our area and in the United States. Here in our first segment, it's an honor to welcome Rav Yosef Garcia uh, from Mesa, Arizona. He drove in all the way here yesterday. Uh, I think he got a good night's sleep last night uh, to talk to a little bit with us about his journey and the crypto-Jewish community. So tell me, what, what is a crypto... I mean, when I think of crypto, I think of kryptonite. I think of Superman. So wh- what's a, a crypto-Jew? Good morning. How are you? <laughs> okay. Thank you, Rabbi Ted. It's so good to be here in Petaluma, and such it's a sunny day. It's a so great, far, so, so far. Yeah. Um, crypto Jew. What is a crypto Jew? That term was brought on by Rabbi Joshua Stamper of uh, Oregon, and he had thought that it meant mostly the hidden Jew. Those um, in in um, in the Jewish community, refer to them as the B'nai Anusim, those the children of those that are hidden. Uh, Anusim in Hebrew means those individuals that were forced. This is the word itself just means forced, and it meant to an individual who was forced to bend the knee later on. And the children of them, the B'nai Anusim, are those individuals now that we find all over the Americas. Wow. Okay, so that helps that that particular definition. You actually lived in Petaluma at one point. Yes, I did uh, several years ago. And well, gosh, now it's been in the early '80s. I was here in Petaluma and had a thriving business, uh, communications and resell of telephone equipment. Wow. What what's it look like coming back? Is this the first time back? Yes, it is. And Petaluma looks absolutely divine because uh, it. The downtown area looks wonderful. I remember that, and I just drove past the market place. I can't wait to go there and buy some fresh vegetables. But the, uh, the where the 101 has changed its location, and now it's on the outskirts of town, is a lot different. So I thought, wow, there's a lot of people that have moved to this area. Yeah, a lot of people have moved here. So uh, you'll check some of the traffic a little bit later in the day, and we'll find out even more about that. Even more about that. So, um, I know you're speaking tonight uh, in a public lecture at the Nasra Jewish Center on 740 Western Avenue at 7 p.m. to tell our community about your journey and about uh, the crypto-Jewish community and your part in that community. But we get to get this morning a few snippets of what that might be like. So, could you tell us how you discovered this connection you had with your Judaism and the Jewish people? Sure. 
being growing up, I grew up in Panama, and in Panama, it's a, a well, it's a very Catholic uh, community, and the community I lived in, a small town called Arrayhan. It's kind of like the way Petaluma was 30, 40 years ago. Okay. It was a small community, of, and there, there was a thriving Catholic uh, church and a Catholic community, and there I was the altar boy. And I loved the, I loved the the regalia. I loved wearing the the robes. I loved the church bells on Sunday morning. And, but there was something that was missing. I was I had a love for God, and it was uh, this insatiable love that I had for God that just kept me driving, asking questions, and always asking questions. Well, nobody really likes a child that's always asking why, why, why. You don't really want to do this. The priest was going, okay, son, you know, read this book and stop asking all the questions. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to read uh, the Bible. And back in those days, it was a, um, in Greek. So, well, it was all Greek to me. I just couldn't understand it. But somebody had left a English written Bible. And I said, wow, I'm going to read this. And I started reading it and it opened up my eyes to the Word of God. I was thinking, wow, this is a lot of information here. And later on tonight, I'll expand on how I went from that point there to actually returning back to Judaism. Okay. Wow, but that return uh, made obviously a big, big difference in your life. Yes, it did. Uh, unbeknownst to me, later on as an adult, I was aware that I was Jewish, and I'll talk more about that tonight on my story. But it was a lot of confusion. I was wondering why nobody had told me this earlier, why my parents had not told me why none of my cousins or uncles had talked about this, and why I was in a community or in an area where I didn't necessarily belong there. Something was wrong. And you had talked about this earlier, about this this spark, this this idea. What was that? So, I, yeah, I was telling you about this woman who came to me many years ago. She was six months pregnant. Her husband was Jewish. And she wanted to be Jewish by the time she gave birth so that the child, by Jewish tradition, would be Jewish. And she spent uh, 45 minutes telling me about growing up in Catholic uh, settings, uh, parochial school, feeling this little itch inside of her. She was so uncomfortable there, and she abandoned the church and didn't do anything. And at the end of the discussion, she said to me something like, Oh, by the way, my grandmother was Jewish. And I said, well, whose mother? And she said, my mother's mother. I said, well, that little itch that you had inside is called in Yiddish the pintaliyid, the spark of a Jew. Because you're, according to Jewish law, you are Jewish. You are Jewish. You do need a formal declaration, but you are Jewish. So it was similar to your experience. It was similar to that. And... Later on, when I confronted my mother and I asked her, Mom, did you know that we were Jewish? And she said, yes, but that was a long time ago. I said, what? A long time? I was like, okay. When I was talking to the rabbi, 
and I told him my story. He asked me if I'd been circumcised on the eighth day. I said, well, frankly, Rabbi, I don't know. Let me go talk to my mother. So I talked to my mom. I said, Mom, um, were we circumcised on the eighth day or was just were we circumcised normally in the military? Because my father was in the military. And so we had gone to the uh, hospital and all of myself, and I've got two younger brothers, and all of us had been born in military hospitals. And at that time, back in the um, early 50s, uh, it was normal to circumcise the uh, young boys right there, first or second day. And my mother said, no, I had all of you circumcised on the eighth day. And I said, well, that's very strange, Mom. Why, why would you do that? And she said in Spanish, she said, por si acaso. I said, what? Well, that means just in case. I was thinking, just in case, Mom. I, okay. You know, this is, I understand that you wanted to make sure that maybe we had a choice later on in life. And frankly, later on, she said, yes, I wanted to give you that opportunity. If you ever returned to Judaism or if you ever thought about going to Judaism, I wanted to start you out right. Well, that that reminds me of um, uh, early in that same community where I met this uh, this woman. Oh, actually, before that, uh, I met a couple from Puerto Rico who um, they were stationed in the army where I was in, the, in that town. And uh, they had four young men, uh, four boys from the ages of four to 13. And they came to me and they started talking about both of their families had these strange customs. Like every Friday night, they required a white tablecloth on their tables. And they had family dinners scheduled for Friday nights. And as they explored some of this adulthood, they discovered these roots, these Jewish roots, and they wanted to return. So in this particular family's case, the father and the four sons actually had to undergo circumcision as part of their transition back into Judaism. So it's uh, you're, you're, just in case that your mom did, it was a, a good one for you. Yes, it, it was, was a good one for you. So you're serving a community now in... Mesa, Arizona. Yes. And is it a crypto-Jewish community? What, what is it like there? Yes, it is. Um, the uh, group is called Avde Brachaya, Servants of the Living God, uh-huh. or the Living Word of God, Torah, mm-hmm. meaning the Living Word of God. And this group is composed of um, mostly Hispanic individuals. I think we do have one or two that are Ashkenazi. But you let them in. These individuals, they, they love, we have services in, in, well, we have services trilingual. So we have them in Spanish, English, and in Hebrew. The prayers are done in Hebrew. Uh, most of the conversation is in Spanish, and we do have occasionally speak English um, upon occasion. But they're the... Um, the individuals who have been participating part of that group, we have about 90 people, and the adults had to go through a full circumcision. Their sons, uh, one family, uh, the father was circumcised, and then his older son, who was 18, and then he had two younger sons, and both of them got circumcised, so all four of them were circumcised. And then later on, they had several uh, more babies, and those children were then circumcised at birth on the eighth day. Right. So, all of the families there, um, a total, like I said, a total of about 90 people. It fluctuates because of the 
um, individuals that move into the area and then move out of the area of Phoenix, Arizona. It's very fluid uh, of migrant workers working out in the fields. Uh, and it's seasonal. It might get too too hot or too cold uh, for them to move. And so they end up moving to other states. Yeah, what, what's your take on um, what this experience has meant in the lives of these people? What what what, what do they say about it? What do, how do, what do they tell their friends, you know, their, their non-Jewish community that now they've, they've left the community and they're kind of, they, what, what's that like for them? To them, it's, it's really hard. You have individuals who, they, they're shunned by, the, um, by their neighbors and their friends who used to be, they used to be part of the, either the Christian or Catholic church. And so they don't, necessarily like the idea that they have turned Jewish or they have become Jewish. To them, they, they feel like they're isolated. So they, they love coming to synagogue. Our synagogue services run about four and a half hours on Saturdays. <laughs> oh my goodness, four and a half hours. I'm usually kicking them out. Okay, come on, you gotta go. You gotta go home. Okay. Yeah, four and a half hours. Let's see. Well, you got three languages you gotta cover. <laughs> so I guess it could take that long. Yeah, I can imagine. So they really have put themselves, um, they have put themselves in a really difficult situation in some yes, ways by making that decision. But they've obviously found it for themselves to be their truths, uh, for their lives to go back to those roots. A lot of them, what they do is that they start out um, just simply going to a synagogue. Um, Phoenix, Arizona has approximately 35 synagogues. And so there, there's a diverse amount from Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform, Renewal, um, uh, different groups uh, that they can go to. They seem to migrate to these places. I've asked them, I said, well, do you understand Hebrew? No. Do you understand uh, English? No, not really. I go, then why are you sitting here in the synagogue in the back? Oh, I just like the music. I like the ambiance. I like the feeling. Mm. And that's how they start. They, I find them in different groups. Or I'll get calls from different rabbis saying, I think you need to come talk to this person because I can't really talk to them. They only speak Spanish. So I'll go and I'll talk to them. And this is what they tell me, mm. that they love the music. They love the, the just being around other Jewish people. So has there been conflict with the church around, the, uh, is the church considering you proselytizing their members? Uh, uh, what, what has that been like? Well, some churches, uh, some church leaders uh, feel that I might be proselytizing. I do not go to other churches. I don't go to other um, groups of people. If an individual wants to call me up or if an individual has a question, I will ask those questions, answer those questions for them. I'll invite them to come to synagogue services. Uh, sometimes we hold uh, Friday night services. Normally we do not. Uh, Friday nights are for family nights. Uh, we get, it, uh, get them to do it as a, at, at home on Friday nights, and then that way they can just simply come on Saturday day. Yeah, so the four and a half hours makes up for what they didn't do on Saturday exactly. night. I got you, I got you. Wow. And I understand you, you travel to other uh, Latin American countries to uh, meet that community. How, uh, what, what's it like 
What's that part of it like? It, it's very interesting. I'll, I'll usually get calls from, we advertise on the internet, so there are individuals who call us up from Costa Rica or from Panama itself or Colombia or uh, Ecuador. Currently, we're working with a group in Ecuador um, where we had gone several years ago, about six years ago, back uh, down to Ecuador, and we interviewed some 600 people there who had suspected they might have a Jewish ancestry. And it was very exciting. Uh, we spent three weeks there. We didn't see most uh, any of the any of the countryside. We saw some of the countryside, but mostly it was interviewing all these people uh, for three weeks. My wife and I went down there and, and sat and talked to them. One of the exciting uh, interviews that we had was a woman who had been sitting with this group for several years, and she said. Um, well, I, Rabbi, I don't believe I'm, I'm Jewish. I said, well, that's very interesting. You don't believe you're Jewish. Why, why are you here? Oh, I just like the people, and they're very friendly. I said, okay, well, just tell me something about your history. Tell me something about your past. Well, like I said, we, we didn't practice Judaism. I said, okay, I understand that, but just tell me something about how you grew up. She said, well, I you know, grew up in a farming community, and she said, um, every Friday... Uh, my grandmother and grandfather would have us clean up the entire house. I said, okay, well, why? Said, well, you know, we're getting ready for Sunday. I said, okay, good. understand that. I said, well, what else did you have to do? Well, we had to get all cleaned up and get on our very best clothes for Friday night. I said, well, that was very strange. Why, why did you have to do that on Friday night and not Saturday night? And she said, well, it's because uh, my grandmother told me that we were waiting for the Virgin Mary to show up. I said, you're waiting for the Virgin Mary to show up on Friday night. And how are you going to do this? Oh, we had to light candles so that way she could see us. I said, okay. <laughs> I said, okay, that's that's a Jewish practice. That's not a, a right. Catholic practice. Yeah, well, of course, the interesting part of that, of hearing that, is uh, my understanding, actually, of Jewish history, which would show that some of the things that we have done as Jews that we consider to be Jewish traditions were actually brought in from other cultural or religious traditions and became Jewish as a result of it. You know, it's like uh, American Jews who make Aliyah to Israel, who move to Israel, uh, observing the fourth Thursday of, thanks, of uh, November as a, as a meal uh, as part of their Israeli experience, right? That's correct. Uh, it's, do, it's the same kind of thing of people bringing in these cultural things and making them into whatever they are at at a particular moment. And so that's, we're talking about five centuries of, of time in between. Yes. Between the Inquisition and, and the current period of time. So that's, that's a lot of time for some of this stuff to uh, develop. Right? Because this... This, these communities trace back to the Inquisition period, I would assume. Yes, that that's right. right. In Ecuador, the families that are found in Ecuador come from two boats that sailed. I was able to sit and talk with the um, state historian, and he has documented the families who actually came from Spain who were escaping the Inquisition, and they had documented that they burned the ships down and had moved all the way up to a small town called Cuenca, which is in the mountains of uh, Ecuador, to escape the Inquisition. Unfortunately, the Inquisition still was able to find them in this small community. 
Yeah, and, and what is the, com- the crypto-Jewish community as an umbrella term, of course? Right. How do they experience the anti-Semitism that's bubbling up in our world, and how, how do they relate to that? And what's it, Is it different because of their own experience than the general Jewish culture in America might feel? What, what I'm usually trying to talk them out of it. I'm trying to talk these individuals out of coming back to Judaism. I'm saying, my goodness, uh, there's a lot of anti-Semitism against Jews There's in the Hispanic cultures, uh, whether you live in Costa Rica, Mexico, or in Ecuador. Um, Jews are, Hispanic Jews are shunned upon, and they're not really received very kindly. So you're going to be kicked out of your community. You're going to be kicked out of any support that you might have. Are you really sure that you want to do this? Are you really sure that you want to return? This is going to be a very hard, very difficult road to return to Judaism. If you have not been circumcised, you're going to have to get circumcised. If you have not, uh, once you have completed uh, all your education, you're still going to have to get married in the Jewish community. All these things that are going to have to happen. And plus, people are going to look at you kind of different. Oh my gosh, you know, Okay, so you used to eat pork all your life, and now all of a sudden you don't eat pork. You know, what's going on? So to them, uh, being shunned away and pushed away from the community enables them to say, well, you know what, I, I want to go in this direction no matter what. That's what drives the crypto Jew. Right. If they can reach that point of commitment that it's, so to speak, it does, this doesn't make a difference. All of these factors, all of these factors, don't matter yeah. to them. If if I didn't help them out, they would do it on their own. I've seen it over and over again to different countries that I've talked to and sat down and been able to interview these individuals. I see that they are absolutely driven to return to God. Mm-hmm. It's it's like uh, when we have read. We just got into the, the Parsha Vaikra, and God called. He called his people. And that's what's happening here. That's what I've seen in the past 20 years, is God calling his people back. And these individuals are absolutely driven to come back to God. It's amazing. And just to take a big leap in our final few minutes, you've also adopted this project on a different side of the world, the Kung Fu Jews, right? Yes, the so, uh, Jews from Kaifeng. Yeah, yeah, so what, what, what's that about? Rabbi Joshua Stamper of uh, Portland, Oregon, had first went to China because he had heard rumors that there was uh, Jews living in, in China, and so he decided to go. He went, uh, and he saw these individuals. They were all uh, worshiping, and, and they were praying on, on Shabbat. So he walked in, he sat down, and he was with them. Those individuals, after the Shabbat service, they came up to him. He introduced himself. Well, Rabbi Joshua Stanford is a tall, skinny, European-looking rabbi. You can't mistake him for anything else but a rabbi. Especially when you're in China. (laughs) In China. And uh, they talked to him, and they said, well, uh, you're Jewish. And he looked at him and said, yes, of course, I'm, I'm Jewish. And they said, well, you don't look Jewish. (laughs) <laughs> to them, to the Kaifeng Jews, they had been there before World War II and had escaped um, the Inquisition. They had escaped uh, 
the uh, atrocities of World War II and were living there in China. And they had intermarried with the Chinese and had become Jewish and had continued practicing Judaism all these years. So now we have families who have actually approached me and we're working with them as well to return them to Judaism here in the United States. Wow. And so you have descendants of that community here in the United States? That's or? correct, yes. Wow, that's yes. amazing. Who are, who are actually part of our organization. So we do have those individuals who are part, who have gone through a ceremony of return to be recognized as Jews right. here in the United wow. States. That's amazing. That is amazing. It's uh you know, there's there are, uh, there's humor in the American Jewish community about Jews' affinity for Chinese food, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, always, you know, having Chinese food for for Shabbat dinner or something yes. like that. So this connection, of course, is uh, is profound because the Jewish people have been dispersed throughout the world over all these centuries, and uh, it's been it's kind of reclaiming. It's a form of reclaiming. Absolutely. Yeah. How, how is Israel handling the uh, the crypto Jews, the, the kind of Jews? How is it? Well, in terms of citizenship, there's there's several organizations, but one in general, Shvi Israel, who uh-huh. is a, a wonderful organization. They're in Israel, and they are helping the Benjamin. They're helping the crypto Jews return to Judaism. Uh-huh. Um, unfortunately, for them, they have to the individuals who want to return. Uh, using that particular organization, they have to go to Israel to do that. Our organization here, which was founded by Rabbi Joshua Stanford and Rabbi Samuel Lair of Blessed Memory, uh, the three of us had started an organization to help those individuals here in the Americas to come back and to be accepted in Israel today. Oh, that is wonderful. So this this uh, story is an amazing one. And we're all going to have an opportunity uh, tonight at B'nai Israel, 740 Western Avenue in Petaluma at 7 p.m. to hear more of the story. And you're going to be with us on Shabbat morning for yes. Shabbat services. So please uh, bring all your questions. 945 a.m. Uh, on Shabbat morning. It will be wonderful to have you there with us. Thank you very And much. I want to add also that your wife has a very interesting story of her journey into Jewish life and and, yes. and her connections. Absolutely. So we would look forward to hearing that. And thank you for being here with us uh, this Thursday morning. Uh, the second segment of our program today will welcome Henry Kaku from the Japanese American community. And you are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted at KPCALP, Petaluma, California.
Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCALP, Petaluma, California. Here we are back in our studio, uh, switching gears in the second segment in many ways. I want to welcome Henry Kaku from the Japanese-American community, who is here to uh, share a little bit of his story and uh, an opportunity for all of us to acknowledge that uh, one of the blessings of living here is a great diverse community in many ways and different cultural, religious, historical experiences that we all bring together in one big community. So yeah. it's great to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. How long have you lived in Petaluma? So I've lived in Petaluma since 1985. Uh-huh. So my wife and I and my daughter, we moved up here, bought a house, and we've been living here ever since. Yeah, it's okay to be here, right? Oh, love it. You love, I love it. Petaluma. Yeah, you were a teacher at Casa Grande, too? Um, I taught a couple of classes. Uh-huh. I, I was, I've been in the human resource field in my profession. Uh-huh. Um, I was a teacher back in the 1970s. Oh, last century. I yeah, remember yes. that. Yeah, that's a long <laughs> many time. Decades yeah, many decades ago. many decades ago. Many decades ago. So w- one of the um, pieces of what I try to do in this radio show is uh, to look at different people's journeys and what they brought to our community in Petaluma and, mm-hmm. of course, our country, etc. Mm-hmm. And um, some journeys are... Uh, starlit and beautiful. Some journeys are difficult and roadblocks and all kinds of things. So uh, I know that the Japanese-American community uh, has had, uh, certainly in post-war, etc., very, very difficult part of that journey. Yes. Hopefully it's it's improved significantly, I would (laughs) hope, uh, since then. So... um, 
Uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about that and get sure. into the subject? Yeah, so it started obviously during World War II. Both my parents are native-born Californian, born in Fresno, and my mother, mother was born in Brawley, California. And when the war broke out, they were both put into prison with their parents, their grandparents, all, and all their siblings, basically incarceration. And they were incarcerated for over four years. And the whole story with my family is very unique to the over 120,000 Japanese Americans who were incarcerated during this time, during the war. And with my family, it was very unique in that we were probably less than 10% of the total population that were eventually, at the end of the war, deported. So, And then when they were deported, their U.S. citizenship was taken away. So for me, when I was born, I was born without a country. I was stateless. And it wasn't until I was eight years old that I became a U.S. citizen because my father was able to hire an attorney in San Francisco while living in Japan to regain their U.S. citizenship. So my story then is coming to America at the age of eight and starting all over in school, starting from first grade and growing up in Palo Alto. And now eventually, 1985, I moved to Petaluma. Uh, so here yeah, I am. That's yeah, it's said so simply, but it's not quite so simple, is it? No, it isn't, because, of, like I said, of the 120,000, about a little over 5,000 individuals were deported at the end of the war. What was the basis for the deportation? Yeah. And they were deported because they were tr what they were considered the no-no boys, the term coined by the WRA, the War Relocation Authority. And they were considered no-no boys because... They were the dissident. They were the troublemakers. So my father, starting from pretty much day one, he was in the serving in the U.S. Army when the war broke out. He was kicked out of the Army after Pearl Harbor was bombed. Went home, found out his grandfather was already taken away by the FBI. Had no idea where he was at. He then, within two weeks later, was asked to report to by the WRA to be relocated, basically. They called it relocation, basically incarceration into concentration camps. So once he went in, and he went in angrily, he said, this is not right. Why am I being put in prison? I'm an American. I was in your U.S. Army, and I'm being put into prison. And it didn't help matters that he lost everything that he owned in his house, his farm, his tractors, his truck, all of his farming equipment, including the crop that was ready to be picked by his father, but his father was no longer around. His two younger brothers were, I think at that time, 16 and 15 years old. So he was very angry and went into prison by military guards watching him, pointing guns at him from the same uniform that he wore just several months later, before. And so he was obviously angry. He went in and he continued to voice his opinion saying, this is not right. He was trying to get other young men of his age in the early 20s to go along with him and to get other people to support his point of view so that they could speak out as a group to the WRA, to the authorities. However, he was a small minority in that because most of the other Japanese American young men and women and the, the elders um, said, you know, there's nothing we could do the term shikataganai, meaning it can't be helped. Mm. So let's just go along with it, be good citizens, be quiet, and go along with what 
is happening to them. So, so he got in trouble. So he that. got in trouble, and he did that obviously for the next four years. He was incarcerated. Uh, and so what happened then in 1943, the U.S. government sent out a questionnaire. And this is where the term no-no boys came from. Because there were two questions, question number 27 and 28. So now question 27 said, are you willing to serve in the U.S. Army and military force and go wherever ordered to? And the second one was to forswear any allegiance to any foreign country and to forswear all allegiance to the United States. So the first question for my father was very, like, how ridiculous is this to ask me this question? I was in your army. You kicked me out. You put me in this prison, put my mother and father, my grandparents, my entire family in, pri- you know, in prison, and now you're asking me if I would serve in the military. So he refused to answer. And that's where one of the questions of the no came from. So he basically was considered a no in that. And once you're no on one of the two questions, you're no-no. And that's where the coin no-no boys came from. And it was mostly the men that answered no. And at this time, you know, my, my father was married to my mother, obviously. And so she, if she didn't answer no also, she would have been separated from my father. And at that time, my sister was um, like a year old. My sister was born in concentration camp. And so my mother had to go along with my my father so that they would not be separated because then they were taken out of one prison camp and sent to another prison camp called Tule Lake. So that's how the no-no boys began. And then ultimately they were deported for answering no-no. Correct. Yeah. those questions. Right. So there were a total of over 10,000 people who were considered the no-no boys. Obviously, because you have, for example, my father, and then my mother would be automatically considered a no, so that's two already. And then my sister would have been considered a no, even though she was only three years old at this time. So, and then now my brother, who was six months old. So out of the four, only one were truly saying no because of the treatment he was getting by the government being put in prison and losing everything that he owned. So at the end, in 1946, even though the war ended in December 45, it wasn't until uh, March of 1946 that my mother and my brother and sister were rejoined with my father. And so, and they were rejoined, sent to Portland, Oregon, and deported. So going back a little bit, my father, the last year of incarceration from beginning 1945 to 1946, he was separated from my mother and his two children. So they did not, were not able to see each other, communicate with each other. He, he was in Bismarck, North Dakota, in a POW camp, prison camp, and my mother was at Tule Lake incarceration camp. Yeah, so, you know, as an American citizen, even though I was obviously just a child at that point, it's just so hard to imagine that that was happening in this country, but I, we know it did. I'm not in any way denying that that was happening. And of course, as a Jew and knowing what was going on in Europe uh, at the same time for my people, uh, it, uh, incarcerations and death and the whole thing, it was a, p- a pretty miserable period of time for for our world and challenging time uh, and for yeah, your right. family. Yes. What's have there been? What do you think the long term effects have been on on your family and the community, the Japanese American community? What 
Is it just the elders that talk about it? Uh, do the children talk about it? What's that like now? Actually, it's total opposite. Okay. The elders never spoke about it. Mm-hmm. They were very, I think, deep inside, they were ashamed of going along with the government. But they felt that they had no choice. So they would not talk about it. And like with my, even my parents' age group, who are all pretty much all gone now, the second generation, American-born, uh, Japanese-Americans, if we would ask them, majority of them would say, oh, it was just, we, we were in a camp. They call it a camp. So as a young child myself, the third generation here growing up, and we'd hear them, our parents, would, they would say camp, and we, we would think of summer camp. Mm-hmm. Oh, they were gone for maybe six months or, you know, or whatever. You know, it didn't dawn on us that they were there for between three to four years and that they had nothing, literally nothing there. But because they didn't talk about it, because they were afraid, they were not afraid, but ashamed to talk about it. So majority of my colleagues, kids that I grew up with all through college, most of them, 90% of them said, oh yeah, my parents were in post in Arizona. My parents were in Amachi Camp or Roar in Arkansas. And that's it. And that's about the extent of their parents and their grandparents being incarcerated was my father, because he was angry, he continued to be voiced. And my mother was also very, uh, voiced her opinion. And so oftentimes growing up here in America, every time the subject came up, we would hear for the next 10, 15 minutes all of the mistreatment, all of the things that happened for them. So I was unique. That as I growing up, I heard about the incarceration and the mistreatment, and a lot of things that I heard, I never knew. I could never find any factual proof behind it because it was never published mm-hmm. until about maybe four or five years ago. There was one book called Thirty Nine Months of Tule Lake, where they, for the first time, an officer, American officer, wrote, kept a diary, and he talked about the fact that this one Mr. Okamoto was killed. And my father told me this back in 1960, 1950, you know. And I'm going, is he exaggerating the stuff? He, he talked about two of his friends being beaten up by other Japanese Americans incarceration during the incarceration because they were the troublemakers, you know. And so, and all this stuff, I, I hear kids dying, babies dying in mom's arms because lack of food, lack of treatment, you know people committing suicide when they were incarcerated, the elders. So these were not substantiated. In fact, you know, I mean, I couldn't find any facts about it. Even the very early books in the 80s were all talking about, you know, the Japanese Americans being incarcerated, the facts. And the general terminology of everybody was the the coin, Nisei, the quiet American, was one of the titles of the book Mm -hmm. because that's what they were. My parents were the quiet Americans. They were the loyal Americans and the, you know, the perfect minority group because they, quote, successfully made it back after the war into the society. But the fact is that uh, you said that they were ashamed of not having spoken up. Mm-hmm. But even speaking up, that would not have helped. They, right. they did not have the choice that they may have imagined that they had right. to, had they spoken up. It, it was they were forced into that. It was not exactly a, right. It was not. Yeah. And what, what's happening in the, uh, so 
your generation, but I'm talking about your children, grandchildren, that those generations. What is, how are they dealing with this, and what do they do? They talk about it. Do are they? The textbooks talk more about what happened in the schools and the colleges. Do the families talk about it? Is it still there? What's what's happening with that? And for example, for schools. I have an example of one of the textbooks that was just uh, stopped at Casa Grande High School here in Petaluma okay, three months ago, or three right. years ago, the textbook. And it has one paragraph yeah. about the Japanese Americans being incarcerated. Yeah. So is it being talked about in general? No. Okay. And especially throughout the country. But here in California, I think, and West Coast, it is talked about more. But that's because we have, we're fortunate to have, say, 10, 15 teachers out of the, all the San County high schools that are interested in this subject, who invite people like myself and my colleagues to go and speak to their classrooms. So I'm very fortunate to say that, and you know, every year we, we reach maybe three to 4,000 kids and individuals, adults as well, in talking about this story because these few teachers invite us in to their classrooms and give a presentation. So, so in that respect, it is, it is being talked about but still, overall, I would still say it's a very small minority. And the story of my family being deported and citizenship taken away, that's hardly ever, ever told because hardly every, anybody right. knows. Even my own colleagues in my generation, my co-speakers, presenters, when I first started talking to, with, with these schools 10, 15 years ago and telling my colleagues what happened to my family, they go, we've never heard of that. Mm. We've never heard of Americans being deported and citizenship taken away. They just thought I was weird because I was born in Japan. So, yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's just amazing how our textbooks and our educational system has reduced all this. I, I remember back in the 70s seeing a textbook. I was in Georgia, living in Georgia, and the, the whole European experience for was one sentence, six million Jews were killed during the war. Exactly. That was, that was the, extent, <laughs> the extent of the amount, which is the same as that one paragraph, yes. right? 120,000 right. 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 For their protection. For their protection. It's yes. Just, uh, just to leave it at that. Exactly. Um, I, I, I know the, I have an answer for myself for the question I'm going to ask you, uh, but I, I wanted to give you a chance to express it, which is, well, why do we need to learn about these things? Why is it important to hear these stories? Well, one of the things that I tell the high school kids especially is that, you know, we study history so that we could hopefully learn from it and so that we don't repeat history. That's why we study history. Um, and in the past, I would say before President Trump became president, it was more factual of, hey, look what happened. And... And the American government, for the first time in 1990, formally apologized to the Japanese Americans with a letter saying, we made a mistake. So the government was willing to take that stance and do that. And so up to this point, it was still teaching the young kids because so few were being taught about this experience to a group of American citizens being taken away and put in prison for nothing other than the fact that they were yellow, they were Asians. It was basically done because of racism. So to teach about racism and all that was very important. In the last two years, the, my tone of presentation has quite changed quite a bit, especially with 
after 9-11, um, the ban of Muslims coming to the United States by an executive order. Once we heard that, it was like deja vu. 1940, Executive Order 9066 put away all Japanese Americans. This executive order did this crazy thing of not allowing any Muslims to come to this country anymore. So fortunately, that was stopped immediately by the superior courts throughout all over the United States. But back in 1941, it didn't. Okay. And, and so there's a parallelism there. They were talking about putting away the Muslim leaders because they're terrorists. Well, they haven't done anything wrong yet. But that's exactly what the FBI did in 1941, coming to my grandparents and taking him away. And every leader, within the first week or two after Pearl Harbor, the FBI knew exactly who all the leaders were of the Japanese American community. And they took away the ministers, the organization leaders, and everything immediately, right after Pearl Harbor. So that's very similar to what happened to the Muslims right after 9-11 throughout the United States. A number of Muslim leaders were taken away by the FBI, some just for a couple of months, a couple of weeks, and others up to a whole year. They were put away in prison. Today, what's happening when we hear about family separation at the border, okay, that's exactly what happened to my grandfather being taken away from his family. And the parents had no idea, my, you know, their children had no idea what was going on and where they were being taken away to and how long. And then the final year of war, my father being taken away from my mother and his two little children and lost communication. You know, so the family separations, you know, what we're seeing today, we saw back then. And so it's more important for myself and others to go out and talk about it to these kids saying, you're the future leaders. You're going to be making decisions on who you're going to vote for, who's going to become your leaders in the community. And it's those people that you got to vote for and be part of and be active in the community to know what's happening. You know, what kind of executive order is our current president signing? And how does it affect and people? And how it affects, exactly. Lives and children. And, and, and to speak yeah. up, you know. Right, right. Individual person can make a difference is our point. You don't need to be part of a big organization. Yeah, I think it's very important. Uh, I think I shared with you when we met uh, before the program last week, uh, the, the young woman, the junior at Casa Grande, who talked about the importance of education, about the history right. of, of various things that have caused separation among human beings, mm -hmm. and that we need to learn what all these things were, because that will give us the opportunity perhaps not to repeat them again. Correct. And uh, it's really, really, very important. And so the group that you are with, the, what's the it's, name it's, of it? It's the Oral History Committee of the Sonoma County chapter of the JACL, the Japanese American Citizens League. Yeah. So okay. And, and you are available for? We are, we are available to go to speak at community organizations. We've spoken at Rotary Clubs. We've spoken at, you know, other professional organizations. We spoke, obviously, speak at all the high schools, the middle schools, and now to grammar schools. We have a special program that we gear toward the little kids. It's a picture story. So a it's very interesting, story. yeah. And that was just developed last year uh -huh. by a couple of our committee members. So I think, you know, and 
because you know, the Japanese American community in Sonoma County is a small community. Do you yes. have an estimate of numbers in Sonoma County? No, I don't. I, it's okay. I, <laughs> I understand. I, I understand that. But it's a small community. It and is. And when we're trying to deal with large issues of bias, discrimination, etc., we take larger groups. And but it's important for us to focus on our entire population and to make sure that we understand the mm-hmm. diversity that we have. Correct. The history that comes behind all of these various uh, cultural, religious groups that are here, mm-hmm. and the opportunity we have to uh, make it a better place uh, for for people in our in our community. So, if if you were to leave uh, uh, an ethical will for yourself and for your family and your community. What messages around this stuff would you put in there? If you wanted to write a document down and it said, I want you to, my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, future generations, I want you to think about these things because they were so important to me. What would that look like for you? I think... I think I've already kind of said it earlier. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. important to know what happened. And it's important to know, especially if you're a Japanese American, what happened to your ancestors, to your grandparents, and so uh-huh. forth. Uh-huh. Um, I, oftentimes, when I give a presentation, I finish with this talk about uh, a quote from Martin Neumiller. Neumiller. First, he says, First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Right. And that's, yeah. a very, that's a very famous quote. It is. And a very important one. And what I hear in you telling me that is that the no-no boys were a great inspiration for you. Yes. Yeah, they were as loyal Americans as the other 90% of right. the Japanese Americans who were quiet and went along. Right, right. And, and that their message of speaking up, of protest, of questioning, that was that that was your, they mentored you in I your life so. to do that. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear that. I hear that in what you've shared with us. I hear that in the quote uh, from uh, that you just read to us. That's a very famous quote and an important mm-hmm. one for us to listen um, is the Japanese American community have concerns around what's happening in our country today? Then, what's definitely, what's for them? yes. The, the National JSL organization is constantly speaking out against the Trump um, administration and many of the things that he's been doing: um, the deportation, the separation of the children, the Latinos in the Mexican border, and so forth. Yes. Yeah, because it's it's an important piece of this. If, yeah. if, if there's Anything that I would like our listeners to take from this it is this this part, this inspiration that you had, and the way that you are sharing your story, and uh, what it means for for generations to come. Yeah, to thank be able you. To speak up, it's really an important message. Where are you going to be speaking next? Do you have any? Uh, Anything on your agenda? We have about four more schools to present for the next two weeks. Uh-huh. And I just spoke yesterday. And today, in fact, one of my colleagues is speaking at San Rosa Middle School. Uh-huh. And we'll be going to Cinnabar School, I hope, soon. Okay. Yeah. And what, what's the reception like when you have uh, 
and the kids. It's really good. The the kids come up with some great questions and a number of questions. So kids always come up afterwards and say, you know, tell us their personal stories and their personal fears as well. So it is resonating with the kids, whether they were grammar school kids or high school. Well, it's uh, teaching kids that no, no can be okay. Yes. It is an important message that you brought to the community, and I want to thank you very much. You're welcome. For being here with us today. It's, uh, it's so, so important as, uh, just as an American, as a Jew, uh, knowing the historical experiences of my people, of mm-hmm. your people, it's really very important. And I thank you again for being with us today. Thank and you. thank you to all of our listeners for being with Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCALP, Petaluma, California. We'll see you during our next segment in two weeks.